Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Seven Investing podcast. I'm Seven Investing founder and CEO Simon Erickson. GameStop has gone from a company that no one was talking about to one that everyone is talking about. But is buying this stock truly the best way to compound wealth in the stock market? And on top of that, are there decision making tools that we can use to be better investors? Well, to answer these questions, I'm very excited to be joined by Christoph Bikarski. He is a director and professor of rhetoric at the University of Texas. And joining me this morning from Austin, Texas, Christoph, thanks for joining the Seven Investing Podcast. It's so great to be here with you, Simon. I really enjoy what you guys are doing. So really, really looking forward to it. Christoph, I've been a fan of yours for years as well. Uh, I know that you've been an investor for more than 20 years, and we're going to be talking not only about GameStop, but also kind of these decision-making tools that can improve us as investors. Uh, I'm expecting this to be a higher level, a really deeper conversation. And so first of all, I've changed from drinking coffee, which is typical for me, to drinking hot tea. And Christoph, I know you'll appreciate this. I put it in my University of Texas mug for you here this morning as well. Right on. Good man, Simon. Can you first tell me kind of your perspective on how you think of yourself as an investor? How do you self-describe sure. as an investor and think about the stock market? Uh, I think of myself as a humble investor uh, because, well, let me, let me give you a backstory. For whatever reason, call it genetic, I was never tempted by a kind of investing that is lottery based, meaning uh, promises of what, you know, the wildest riches beyond your imagination. So I never was fooled into buying lottery tickets or penny stocks or any of that hype. I don't know why I'm just resistant to those kinds of, yeah, uh, exuberant fake claims. Um, maybe because I'm a professor of rhetoric, I could see through the sort of, you know, false advertising front. So I, I never got into that. But for a long time, I, I would, I thought, well, the opposite of that would be doing a whole bunch of analysis and really getting good at numbers and, you know, crunching the facts and getting, you know, getting things exactly right. And I think for maybe the first, oh, it, it, it was a long time, maybe not the first few years, but in the middle of my investing journey, that strategy of, I would call it mere analysis, proved more costly to me than any other, than anything I'd done before, which is counterintuitive to some extent. I think the reason was because I felt sometimes that I was so right about an investment because the numbers added up, because the product was the best, because you know all the ways our, our capacity to be righteous, <laughs> right? I, I, I was really taken by like, no, obviously I'm right about this. Everything, the numbers add up. And then when the stock market decides, <laughs> you know, goes the other way, <laughs> for what seemed to me like diabolical reasons that were, you know, chalk it up to insanity or weird, whatever, it became maddening. And some of my greatest losses were the ones about which I was in a sense right about in theory. <laughs> and so that taught me 
I think from then on to try to have some kind of what I call, I mean, this is cliched, but balanced approach where obviously the analytical work has to be there. But if that's not enough, then what is this other thing that's needed? And that's when I drifted heavily into the behavioral side of things, the psychological side, the human side, the storytelling side to counterbalance the analytical. And out of that, I think comes what I would call that sense of humility that I invest with humility, meaning I may be right, I may not be right. If I'm right, great. If I'm not, I'm gonna admit it very quickly with no sense of shame or no loss of, <laughs> uh, no, no damage to my identity, uh, which then allows me to course correct and keep following the you know, good stories, the ones that are uh, working. So I abandoned that sense of needing to be right. And I think, you know, I know it might sound, it, here's the thing. I think it, if I hear myself saying that, it might sound fluffy to any investors getting in the game. Oh, here's a guy that just goes by some loosely defined code of humility. And yet I'm pretty sure this, this way of looking at investing um, has created more, you know, higher returns for me than any other framework that I could think of. So let's get deeper into that then, because I know that Christoph, you kind of started a lot of your investing in kind of the mid to late nineties. You saw obviously the dot, the dot bomb, the dot com crash <laughs> uh, in the early two thousands that, that changed a lot of people's conviction in the stock market, but it kind of feels like there's some echoes of that today, right? When people are trying to jump in and out of stocks so quickly um, I've been seeing a lot of messages that people are just saying that investing is easy right now. It, it's almost frustrating for long-term investors to hear things like that because it seems to suggest that you can just get in and out of stocks and make a lot of money without really considering those risks. Uh, you have mentioned that you really believe in, in character of investing and you mentioned things like humility and patience. What do you think about what's going on in the market right now? And what could possibly we do as investors as a whole that might correct some of this behavior? You know, Simon, I think this is actually normal human behavior. <laughs> uh, in the sense that humans in general, historically, go through phases and cycles. Uh, I think the internet makes it easier for us to see more clearly what cycle we're in just because it's, you know, we all now have these magnifying, these tools that allows to magnify behavior on Twitter and social media. But go back to any, you know, historical civilization, there's booms and there's busts and human beings uh, are wired pretty much the same today as we were wired in ancient Rome. So when things are going well, we get big heads. When things start going poorly, we get overly pessimistic and downtrodden. I don't think that's ever going to change uh, in general, in general. <laughs> 
what can change, or I think what we can tend to in the moment is identifying explicitly for ourselves, oh, this is a phase that we as humans collectively are in that seems to be getting overly exuberant, overly enthusiastic, overly, dare I say, greedy. Uh, and being aware of that, that that's the phase we're in now, and then saying, huh, okay, well, that's an important piece of data, isn't it? That is the service, I think, uh, Seven Investing can provide for a lot of people. Not to shame, in other words, not to shame uh, the people who are in, are being kind of taken over by this mindset, uh, because it is normal, but to bring a kind of awareness to them as these kinds of things you're making claims about on Twitter, about the ease of investing and posting your gains in a month, <laughs> that that is pointing you toward a greed mindset. And then you have to realize that historically that always ends badly. <laughs> yeah. And, and the long term, I mean, if done right, we, we do want to empower investors. We think that the stock market is something that people should actively be involved in. But perhaps YOLO, look how much money I made in the last 20 minutes. And, and let's brag about it to everyone who will look at my brokerage isn't the most constructive behavior. No, I mean, right. Read any uh, Shakespearean play. <laughs> Read any ancient Greek. Uh, Hubris, you know, yeah, sure. Right, yeah. The story always ends the same. Always. Uh, and I like, uh, you know, I like uh, thinking of investing sort of as a two-part thing. It's like you got to do the initial investing part, analytical part well enough to get yourself gains. And then you got to do the behavioral stuff to keep them. <laughs> right. Right. I, I mean, like it makes, it, it's no good to have at one point had $1 million in digital gains to wake up three days later to, for all of that to have disappeared because you didn't consider carefully enough the source of gains. You know, how did those gains happen? Was it, right, something a little more legitimate or meaning, I mean, I don't know, legitimate seems like a good word, right? Like, like often, often, not always, right? Hard work and patience and these character things, we appreciate them because they are more grounded. There's a little more reality under them, like making real things with your hands. Is that how you made your gains or did you make them because there's some wild craze, some wild mania that you happen to luckily step into at the right moment? Is that as legitimate? Probably not. <clears throat> Therefore, more care needs to be taken. I'm glad you framed it that way of the analytical piece of this and then the behavioral piece of that, because you know, we are definitely aligned in, in wanting to, to help people invest better. And Christoph, I should mention that since Seven Investing launched last March, we have only had one guest writer appear on our site. And 
that writer is you, uh, who has written two articles now that we've featured uh, directly on Seven Investing, because I think it's so important to take that next step and figure out what do I do? You know, how should I pull the trigger on this? I've got kind of these emotions about this. How do I control all this so that I'm making good long-term decisions? And so the two write, the two articles that you've written for the site, one was called uh, Don't Panic, Why Don't Panic is Not Necessarily Great Advice, which is very interesting. And then the other is about the importance of patience. And uh, without oversimplifying these, Christoph, because I'd encourage everybody to read through each of those articles, which we'll post to this podcast, the links for them. But there's kind of some consistent themes that you have. Uh, one is that I... I think that a lot of people are trying to oversimplify these managers in our minds that are either telling us, you've got to buy this stock, get in right now, or you're going to miss this opportunity, or the complete opposite of just completely stay calm, don't do, don't do anything, just let it ride. But in reality, perhaps there's some kind of middle ground between the two of those that you should be listening to both sides of the spectrum. Can, can you explain a little bit more about your first article and what that means, Christoph? Sure, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> this is, uh, I think my response, many of my responses are born from my experience as a Zen practitioner, which now I've been, have, has sort of been a, a guiding framework for me for, I wanna say 12 years. Uh, and that's what I wrote my, my uh, dissertation about. So a lot of these ideas stem from that particular curious source. <laughs> in the Zen, Zen framework, uh, I teach, and I also teach a class at UT called the non-argumentative rhetoric of Zen. <laughs> I'll be there. I'm going to audit that one next time I'm Wait, in Austin. You're in. You're in. It's actually, it's a life-changing course for, ma for many students that take it. Because there's a pop culture view, I think, uh, of Zen that basically makes people think it's about chilling out, relaxing, right? Not being swept up by some emotion. Uh, in, in one way, it's not wrong. <laughs> it's just so overly reductive that it is kind of wrong. Because what you, what you end up seeing is if you ever encounter a legit Zen master, and there's not that many of them <laughs> roaming the earth, so good luck trying to find one. But if you do, <laughs> you'll notice that they tend to, they do exude this remarkable sense of ease and calm. But what makes them legit and genuine is that that sense of ease and calm is not fake. And it's not because they are dismissing or keeping things out of view. If you, I mean, in theory, if your house is on fire and you step outside and you just look the other way, in theory, you could stay calm, <laughs> right? You could pretend that your house is not on fire, right? And that's kind of what most people think Zen is about, a certain kind of pretending that things aren't as bad as they are or the house is on, on fire when it is. What uh, Zen principles ask us to do instead is to actually notice inside, inside your mind, inside your mind-body complex, all the things that are arising. And that in an investing sense, that includes like 
the the part of you that say greedy and wants more and is winning, right? What does that feel like? And then you also have uh, probably another part inside of you that's really scared. That's like, oh my God, we've made so much money. Uh, we should sell immediately because it's already up 30%, <laughs> right? We'd be foolish not to. The, this, this, uh, what I wrote about in that first article, therefore, was to not fall into the trap of preferring or arbitrarily choosing one or the other part of you and acting from one or the other. Instead, it's that middle ground, more middle ground awareness piece where you recognize you have both of them and you wanna learn about what both wants. You wanna, you wanna kind of connect with the greedy one and you wanna understand why does it want you to buy more and more and more, right? Uh, what is it seeking for you? Right. And it's legit. Like it, it's, it's a legit, it's not like a woo woo uh, <laughs> imaginary thing. Like ask anyone, they, they will tell you, they hear like voices in their heads, right? There's like, and I'm not talking about like schizophrenic, like medically, uh, like as a diagnosis of a, of a bio, chemical imbalance. I'm talking about most normal people have different feelings, voices, right? So what happens when you turn toward the greedy one and figure out what it wants for you? Then get that data and then equally have the capacity to turn toward the one that wants to panic. Why, do, why, does it, why is it panicking? What's it trying to do for you? And you then just by doing that, you realize that both of these uh, parts are generally interested in your well-being. They want to help you. It's just what's odd is that their strategies are exactly <laughs> opposed to one another. So typically that means that these parts get into conflict with each other because this one wants more, this one wants less. And when you think about it that way, that's where that larger sense of anxiety comes up. That anxiety is the direct result of having two separate strategies fighting it out in your head. So <clears throat> to land the plane here, what, what I'm kind of writing about and advocating is a simple capacity to begin to notice. Just notice that this is kind of what's playing out inside of all of us. That step of just noticing is already like leagues ahead of what most people can do. And it turns out by merely noticing, you gain this extra sense of control, like capacity to actually not act impulsively based out of whichever one of these two has your attention. And like any good psych study shows us, right? People who don't act impulsively tend to get more marshmallows or. <laughs> it it right? makes sense, Christoph. The, the long-term reward for being patient and, and listening to um, the, the inner voices and what they're telling you to do or not do. Um, 
I can see how that would make you so much more self-aware. The, the other article you wrote was the importance of patience, which you were calling forbearance in your article that you wrote. And um, I, I thought it was very interesting. One of the things that you had mentioned in that article was that patience is not passive. You know, being patient is not just the same as tuning out or pretending not to notice what's going on. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you think that applies to the market? I mean, obviously we're seeing a lot of herd mentality. We're seeing a lot of retail investors buying GameStop just because other retail investors are doing so with any, without any kind of analysis whatsoever. I mean, we, we preach long-term things like, like watch lists and being ready and doing the analytical analysis. But then you've also got to know as an investor, when do you act on something that you've done your homework for? So what's the role of patience in investing? And then also what's the role of taking action when the time is right? One of the most interesting things I learned in my studies of this to, to a Westerner like, like myself, this Eastern world uh, of Zen and Chan, is that the character, you know how their language is pictographic. I guess that's the correct way, right? Um, the symbol for patience is uh, technically it's translated as a heart that has a sword hanging right above it. And I actually find that very moving and it kind of lands, like it really helps me understand what this quality is pointing us to. In other words, like, what does it mean to have a heart that's open with a sword, meaning, you know, a symbol of danger hovering above it? Like, what do you have to do to keep that heart open? And this concept of forbearance to me points directly to needing as an investor set of principles that, that to be successful at this game, you have to kind of have a, a game plan, right? Ahead of time, a set of, I, I'm not sure if it's a code exactly, right? But, but a system, some sort of system that you've thought about, you learned about, you kind of forged in the fire over the years, right? As you gained experience and you come up with these principles that you believe work. You may, be, you may or may not be right about them, right? But, but that's what experience and, and kind of uh, being able to change over time helps you do. You can always adjust, right? But you start out with some set of principles. This concept of forbearance therefore points you to um, the notion that <laughs> principles are all fine and good when things are easy, but when things get hard, is the first thing you do is toss your principles out the window? If you do, <laughs> they're not really your guiding principles, are they? Right, right. They're a theory, you know, they're kind of like theoretical things that would be nice if only you could, but then you realize, oh, I'm not really living from them. Forbearance, I, I think, is that capacity that you can cultivate over time to live from your principles. And when things get challenging and weird, like in the current GameStop saga, 
that's I think the uh, you know a perfect example of a ready-made situation that gets to test you and gets to try your principles. And when the game st stop saga started unfolding, did you get suckered into the uh, you know the buying frenzy? Did you panic and like what is it that happened, or were you? content sort of staying on the sidelines and saying to yourself, well, that's a kind of weird investing thing I haven't seen before. And there's nothing, I'm going to be interested in it. I'm going to observe what's happening, but there's nothing that I, but by entering that world, I'd be violating principles three through seven. So I'm going to have enough forbearance to stay out of it and just observe. Lost is an investor without principles. <laughs> I think we have seven of them, Christoph, which which we should post <laughs> on this as well. And thank you for the spot up on them. Um, there was one other thing in, in this article that really caught my attention that I thought was quite insightful, and that is you were you were pointing out that we never have complete information as investors. And I think that this is kind of another one of those emotional anchors of we say, oh, I'm really interested in this company. Maybe I'll buy it, but there's something that just kind of holds us back from, from taking, from actually hitting the buy button, from actually taking a position. Maybe it's, oh, maybe I just haven't done enough research or, oh, maybe it's too expensive of a value, whatever it is. We never get complete information as investors. We can't know everything. What types of companies do you invest in and what generally prompts the moment of action for you to purchase a new investment? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Great question. I've got uh, plenty of hot tea if you need to take a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'll confess to you that I also, uh, since a fairly young age, I was hit pretty hard by the poker bug. That uh, <laughs> the, um, I became fascinated with Uh, I guess I've always been fascinated with human behavior and how people tell stories to one another. And poker is this game that Texas Hold'em, especially, that relies on, uh, in, you know, its structure is incomplete information. And then on the highest levels, you're not playing, you're not really playing the cards, you're playing the other people. <clears throat> and so I've more than, more than dabbled <laughs> in this world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you learn, for example, that sometimes 0.0, whatever, 6% of the time, you might look down at your hand and see aces. Well, aces are a funny thing because aces are the best hand that you could be dealt. So you're, I don't know, about approximately 82% favorite to win. And uh, 82% is a pretty high percentage, right? So many people then get all excited about their aces and most of the time they do well. But you then also have to realize that 18% of the time, they're not going to win, even though there's nothing better. Statistically, 18% is still pretty high. <laughs> right, right. right? 
I mean, if one of five times you cross the street, you're going to get run over. You're going <laughs> right. to, right? You're, you're, it's, it's, it's not as simple as it seems, right? So given this framework that even in the best of times, there's no such thing as a, a, a sure thing when we're dealing with incomplete information, I think over time I've, I've let go of needing to be right or, you know, I got rid of that perfectionist part of me to, I got him to relax. You know, I have these conversations in this parts way saying, I know you want the best for us. And I know you want a hundred percent accuracy. And I know why you would want that because it's safer, because of course we want to invest in things that are hundred percent given. And that's actually not how the world works. <laughs> So you can thank you for sharing with me your concern about the need for accuracy. But in this case, we don't have it. So we're going to have to proceed anyway. And so once I kind of negotiate in me the reality of the world, I tend to lead with companies that, this sounds cliched and hokey, but it's true, uh, feel good to me. Uh, and so that's kind of a two-part thing itself. When I say feel good to me, one, on an almost literal level, because I'm deeply concerned about ethics and morality and the impact that my actions have on others and that some companies' actions have on others, I simply won't invest in the company. I don't care how good their numbers are if I think they are doing explicit harm like knowingly. So I just don't touch any of that. Like the world is complex enough or troubled enough. I don't need to participate in any way in that kind of thing. So therefore, if there's a company that I actually believe in the mission where I actually think they're helping, you know, solve an important human problem, I get excited. That's what I mean by feel good in one way. But the other way is like by feel good, I then uh, do the analytical piece of it. <laughs> and, you know, like uh, increasing revenue growth or accelerating <laughs> revenue growth uh, in a huge open market feels good, <laughs> right? So I examine the, the business model, right? The business model and the numbers uh, so that I make sure I'm not telling myself a story that's not backed up by evidence. And that to me feels good when I could sleep well at night, right? When the balance sheet lines up. <laughs> when I combine those and there's a company that I feel good about uh, regarding its mission, I feel good about the business model and the numbers. I'm like, I then talk to my, you know, that inner perfectionist and I say, well, we might get this wrong. But the principles tell me it's worth enough consideration to try out. And usually when I invest, I, I take an initial small nibble position, listen to a few conference calls, and then get to know the people. As my confidence increases, then I start building out that position. And you've got to give me a concrete example, Christoph. I mean, 20-year investor, what, what's a couple companies that have lined up with your 
uh, the feel good process, you know, you feel good about their principles that, that they have. And then also the, the numbers really seem to suggest it's a good investment too. any, any, any companies you've been proud of over two years, 20 years, two decades in the, in the stock yeah, market? Over two decades. Yeah. The sad thing is that all, in all these cases, I sold too early. Sure. Yeah, we I'm all do. Good. Right. You, <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> uh, uh, but the big ones, historically, I remember uh, I was a Apple. I used Apple from the time I was in the eighth grade. So before, like basically before Apple had the big combustion of like be, becoming a dying company and Steve Jobs getting kicked out of the board, I always loved the product. And I, it, it kind of got to sort of snobbery against, uh, pardon all you Android people or you, you PC people out there. But like, I just felt like, I, I remember in the, I guess mid, this must've been like, yeah, mid nineties, late nineties. I remember loving the product, loving the mouse, loving the the color, the Apple, like everything about it felt better than what I saw my PC people had to go through with the DOS weird like carrots and weird hieroglyphics on the screen. And then I would walk into a computer store, right? And there'd be the the 98% of it was PC stuff. And then in some hidden corner (laughs) was the Mac section. And I was like, why is this? Like the thing that's better and like good and friendly is like a pariah. Anyway, I, I loved the idea that the, the friendlier, uh, more human computer would be the better product. And so I invested in Apple um, kind of way, way back. And then the iPod came along that, you know, and then it kind of reinvigorated itself. Uh, so I held on to Apple for the re- for that sort of Jobsian vision of making computing more human through, I think, <laughs> through the mid iPhone stage. So it's pretty long time. Uh, so that's an example of like believing in the company and riding it for, for a while. Uh, a more modern example would be Tesla. Uh, be, it, and it's actually come to think of it, the two are related. When, when, I, um, when Steve Jobs died, I genuinely felt like I missed something important to me as a human was gone. Um, like I actually cared about Apple as a, as a, as a company, as a kind of ethos. And so when that went away for a little while, there was a gap of like, I don't know if you're, if you're a weenie investor, you sort of, you know, you know what it's like to sometimes look forward to earnings calls. (laughs) You know, people are different levels with investing, but it's possible. I'm here to tell you to get excited about, (laughs) Those are exciting Friday nights for us here, Christoph. Right, okay, we, we are right, always exactly. digging into the earnings calls. Yeah. So, you know, when I realized I'm no longer looking forward to Apple's earnings calls, I began kind of scouting for the, the uh, a kind of replacement. And that's when I discovered Tesla quite early because I truly believed in the climate change issues that they need to be solved. I thought Elon Musk had the same kind of 
brashness or kind of creative genius that Steve Jobs did. And so I hitched my wagon to that story very early on. So that was a successful investment for me for quite a while. And then I sold too early when there was all the market manipulation and bankrupt, you know, nearing bankrupt. Like there's a lot of uncertainty that my own threshold was not willing to hold through, but that's kind of separate. So one other topic I wanted to, to chat about, and I think there's some investing takeaway on this, but I want to extend your Texas Hold'em analysis of the, of the poker playing to, to investing and, and talk about the, the incomplete information, but then also adding to positions over time. Because as you know, as a poker player, you don't have to go all in before you see the flop. You get more cards that you get to see over time. And just like in investing, you don't have to put a full position or put everything in right up front for a company. You can add to it over time. And I think one of the games we also play with ourselves as investors is, is valuation. We say a company is just too expensive or, ah, I just don't know. It seems like it's, it's too expensive for me to get into. But the stock market, of course, is always forward looking. It doesn't matter what the past history of the price of the company you're buying into is. Uh, do you add to positions over time? And do those tend to be, uh, uh, do you have a more concentrated portfolio? Or do you tend to spread bets over a bunch of different companies that you think share the principles that you're interested in, and then kind of let the winners rise to the top? Great question. Uh, my portfolio is, is a kind of uh, chimera. It's a, uh, you know, it has a very uh, different front from a very different back. Most of my allocation is in a few companies. I don't know. I think the actual number is like 85% of all my uh, assets slash wealth is in, I think, 12, like very concentrated. And then there's this long tail that has like 80 companies that are tiny, tiny positions. Uh, and so the technical answer is like, I have something like a hundred whatever companies and yet it's only really 12 that 12 to 15 that will make any significant difference at the moment. And so what I tend to do, uh, and this actually goes back to that character piece. I've learned, I think over time that one of the most important things for me is believing in the company like generally believing, uh, like caring almost. <laughs> I don't know if that's too strong a word, maybe not. Caring about the company. And when I ask myself, what is a company? I realize a company is a group of humans. Like I, I force myself to, to uh, dig through that, that kind of, abstract thinking of a company is just of ticker or a price or even a business. And I think of it as a group of people. And therefore, after I make an investment, I've already done the work in terms of the numbers and the numbers seem to be going well, right? That's what the service seven investing provides among other things, but right, but that's a key component. Once that's sort of doing its thing, 
I keep adding, I keep listening to the earnings calls, right? I keep getting to know the leaders of the company. I keep getting to know what happens when a tough period rolls around. Are they honest or do they dissemble and try to avoid, you know, the real issue? As long as the people running the company continue to impress me in terms of integrity, in terms of creativity, in terms of truth-telling and all these character things, I, I typically tend to add because the story was there, the numbers are there, the people are there. And so for me, it's a, it's a, the, all the companies I would say in my top 12 are now longer term positions because I've, they've gained my trust, put it that way. It's not always that simple, right? It's not always that simple. Sometimes there's a, a hot comment that arrives on the scene, <laughs> right? And it's like, okay, I don't have like the IPO landscape and all of that, but even then, if I take a sizable position at the start, it's not going to be more than, you know, like 4%. Uh, and then I become very careful to make sure I follow the people quickly. I, I make it a priority to learn about the company's character. So yes, I add over time. And I, and I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty quick to cut a company as soon as uh, anything is untoward. So it's a kind of paradoxical, yeah, it's a paradox, paradoxical answer I'm giving. It's like, in theory, I want to develop a long-term relationship. And as long as my partner in investing, in this case, the company shows up with full integrity, I continue adding the moment there's something weird or off or the story becomes pure story, I'm out. I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, you date the stocks, you don't marry them, <laughs> but That's I, right. but I like dating for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, stick to the principles and have conviction. I think are the, are yeah. the takeaways from that one. I, la one last question for you, Christoph. A, a lot of, um, people who might be listening to this podcast might be new to investing and they are jumping in at a very interesting time right now. It's been an interesting year for, uh, for investors out there. What would be, there's so much good advice from this entire podcast for people to learn from you. But if you were speaking to a brand new investor, that's just now buying their first stock, what would be one, pre one piece of advice you'd give to them? Yeah. Great question, Simon. I think this might take us full circle. My strategy is one of humility. So for you new investors, when you're hearing these hot stock tips, when you're seeing GameStop soaring, uh, you have the herds downloading Robinhood and all of this, that's telling you that greed is now um, operating. Remember, greed does not end well for often. There's a reason for that. And so if you can remember to invest with humility and patience, 
basically these two virtues uh, that we've been talking about, then you'll realize there's no rush. You don't have to rush to buy all the things with all of your money. You could test it out, right? Buy a tenth of what you can afford. See how it starts playing out. If it goes bust, you'll be happy. <laughs> you only had a tenth. If it does great, okay, well, if it does really great, then you've, you also made money, which is the point. So that kind of moderation, but the larger sense of, of humility to me is like you invest with a self-awareness that one, you're never gonna be right all the time. Two, by the game structure, you can't be right all the time. It's just impossible. So if you're not, if it's not about being right, then it's about just being careful. It's about being in control of, you know, in dialogue, I would say with these inner parts of you so that the greedy one gets to have a say because you got to step up to the table, right? The greedy one is inviting you into the game. Good. It wants, it's helping you in that way. The fearful one is telling you to be cautious because it's dangerous and it is. So you listen to that one too. And you kind of, you kind of, when, when you get those parts dialoguing with each other, that is what I call integrity, meaning integrated. Your parts are integrated with one another. They're not in their separate corners. <laughs> and if you can invest, uh, you know, then you follow the recommendations that Seven Investing offers, right? And you read the analysis, you begin to understand the idea behind this investment, if it makes sense to you, if you enjoy the company, uh, meaning you, you, you like the idea of what it's doing in the world, then start out with a position that's reasonable, that you could afford to lose in, in philosophical technicality. Sleep well at night, and then when things unfold, add a little more. Patience, right? That kind, kind of, kind of not, um, not patience as in like, <laughs> be an old Chinese Zen master on a mountain, right? But, 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 um, in if you invest with integrity out of principles, it feels good because you're not going to be pulled and pushed by these impulsive parts. When it feels good to you, you're not gonna make some of those behavioral mistakes that, from my mind, the most costly. I, I think those are great investing lessons about humility and patience and the integrity of investing. Again, Christoph Bykowski, the, uh, he's a professor at the University of Texas. I, I consider a Zen master of investing. Christoph, man, a lot of fun. Thanks for joining me on the Seven Investing Podcast here this morning. Oh, it's a pleasure speaking with you, Simon. Uh, you guys are doing such great work. I love your recommendations, and I love being uh, able to contribute in what small ways I can. So really appreciate it. And we're going to give uh, even more access to Christoph for people that want to get into this topic a little more. You know, we, you've seen several of his articles on our site. Now we're having the podcast with him. We're going to find ways for our subscribers to interact for those that might be interested in, in learning more about behavior and that side of investing. So uh, Chris, again, thanks for joining seven investing podcast uh, here today. And for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in as well. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are seven investing. Mm -hmm.
A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.